Well, I want to say hi to everybody at all of our sites, people who are joining us online, everybody in this room. And I want to talk to you uh, in this message about power and about the power that we need so desperately to lead our lives. Power to be a good person, power to be a good parent, power to be a, a good spouse or a good friend. Power to make the right kind of choices. Power to keep going when life just feels like it's beating you down and you're ready to give up. Power to stand up for what you believe in. Power to just go to work or face whatever it is that you need to face on a daily basis. We all need power, and we live in an area that's real tuned into power. There's a lot of uh, very powerful people, powerful organizations that live right here in the Bay Area. And that's why a lack of power, powerlessness, can be so painful. It just feels like if I don't have power, I'm not much of a person. It strikes at our sense of dignity or, or purpose or worth. That's part of why to empower somebody has become such a huge word. And in education or in the marketplace, in training, uh, on, in ads, we will empower you is a kind of a big buzzword. But it's often a sneaky way to just get somebody else to do what I want them to do. Hey, dear, let me empower you to make the breakfast that I want. Power is a good thing, but it has a way of doing stuff to us that might not be good. There's actually a professor at Berkeley, Cal Berkeley. His name is Derek Keltner, and he studies the impact of power on human character. And he says that power actually can be hazardous to your moral health. The strangest things happen when people get a little power, just a little. In one study, he put subjects in groups of three people and then just randomly appoint one person to be the leader of that group of three. And then he will bring out four cookies for those three people. You want to guess who almost always assumes that they are entitled to eat the extra cookie? It's whoever has been appointed the leader of that group. Apparently, having power means getting to get the extra cookie. At least at Berkeley, it does. At Stanford, the leader would typically send the fourth cookie back and ask for creme brulee. <laughs> so the misuse of power, we all want power, we all get some power, but we all misuse it. And the misuse of power is, I will use power to get my own way. And I think that power means getting to get what I want. And we're seeing now the abuse of power in high-definition technicolor reality in our day, in government, in businesses, in finance, in the church, articles about this all the time. And at the core of the misuse of power is, I think that power is about me getting my will to be done. And so power has this tendency actually to erode our humanity. And Professor Keltner actually has a phrase for this. He calls it the power paradox. The power paradox is it takes certain skills, certain gifts, certain abilities with people in order to acquire power. But when you get power, that tends to erode the very gifts that it took to get the power. So people who receive power um, suffer from an empathy deficit. They become more insensitive. They become more impulsive. Other people are constantly being nice to them, and so they actually lose their ability to read other people accurately. Keltner writes, my own research has found that people with power tend to behave like patients who have damaged their brain's orbital frontal lobes. There's an article in The Atlantic about a year ago that stirred up a lot of conversation, and the title is simply, Power Causes Brain Damage. 
So you can pass that along to your boss if you want to. Power is not just a title or a position. It is a, it's a force. It's a, it is a spiritual force. And if you know much about the Bible, the Bible writers will sometimes talk about powers and principalities. Obtaining power tends to do something to your state of mind. And over time, it'll make you treat people differently. Tons of studies about this. I'll tell you about one. It's been replicated a number of times about how owning a powerful and expensive car affects the way that we drive. Um, One of them was done with people uh, driving here in the Bay Area where a lot of people are into cars. Now, somebody who can afford an expensive car is more likely to have had a good education. They're more likely to have a good job and a nice house to live in and lots of money. So they have lots of reasons to be grateful. So you would think somebody that's got a more expensive, powerful car would be more likely to express their gratitude by kindness to pedestrians, right? Not so much. It turns out that drivers of less expensive cars consistently give the right-of-way to pedestrians at a crosswalk. So if somebody is driving like a Dodge Colt, not a really expensive car, or an old Ford Pinto, anybody here remember Ford Pintos? When I was growing up, our family, that was the first car that I drove, a Ford Pinto. You had to be careful in that because if you got rear-ended, bad things would happen. Ford Pintos were popularly known as a barbecue that seats four. Um, Anyway, drivers of powerful, expensive cars, as it turns out, ignored pedestrians and just blew off the law almost half the time. The worst two were BMW drivers and Mercedes drivers. Third worst, uh, interestingly enough, were Prius drivers, (laughs) who apparently felt so good about saving the environment they could not drive and pat themselves on the back at the same time. There's a British neurologist named David Owen, and he's actually identified a personality disorder He's trying to get it accepted in the psychiatric community, and he calls it the hubris syndrome. He says, it's an acquired disorder where people see the world as a place to exercise power and seek the glorification of self. And Owen has actually started an organization, no kidding, for the study and prevention of hubris. He is the chairman of that organization. Now, we're in this series, and it's called Killing It, because we live in a society, in a part of the world where you've got to be killing it, you've got to be crushing it in your job, and financially, and with your achievements, and how you look, and, and, and all of that's putting on a kind of pressure that is killing us. Very much like the Bay Area, uh, Corinth, this city that Paul wrote his letter to, was all about killing it, very much about power. People went to Corinth because they wanted to make money. Corinth sat in this little spot geographically where it was kind of the crossroads of trade and commerce, which in the Roman Empire was exploding. So you could make a lot of money there. It had been torn down and then had been rebuilt not real long before Paul's time. So it had a startup culture, and it became associated with a tremendous pursuit for wealth and status. So much so that 2,000 years later, A luxury car in the United States promised that you could have the interior of that car upholstered luxuriously, not just in leather, not just in rich leather, but in rich Corinthian leather. What is Corinthian leather? What do you have to do to leather to make it 
Corinthian leather. Does it come from Corinthian cows? It turns out, I was reading about this, getting ready for this message, there is no such thing as Corinthian leather. Just smart marketing guys were trying to think of some way to make leather sound really expensive and luxurious so people would want it. So they came up with the phrase, rich Corinthian leather, and people went for it. We're, we're just that. That's Corinth, see? That's Corinth, rich Corinthian leather. That's where you go. So if you're going to make it, when you go to Corinth, you better have power. You better have lots and lots of power. But then power kind of does brain damage. And all of this now is the backdrop to the fascinating way that Paul describes his coming to people in the church in Corinth. And he summarizes it like this. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. Who in the world does that? And why? And Paul emphasizes this. He came with fear. Not just fear, great fear. Not just great fear, but weakness and great fear. Not just weakness and great fear, but weakness and great fear with trembling. Who trembles? You go to a job interview, experts say, you got to project strength. You got to know what your strengths are. You got to have assurance and confidence and calmness. You got to watch your body language. Don't fidget at a job interview, especially for sure. Don't tremble. <laughs> Trembling at a job interview is not a good way to get a great position. No speaker came to Corinth in weakness and great fear and trembling. Nobody did. But Paul did. We talked last week about how Paul said he had this thing called a thorn in the flesh that he was prone to concede, and so it was given it to him, and nobody knows exactly what it was. Some people think maybe it was anxiety. Maybe Paul is one who suffered from panic attacks, and he literally physically trembled. Some people have thought maybe he suffered from a form of malaria that's quite common in the ancient world that would have robbed him of his physical vigor and energy so that physically he would tremble with weakness. Paul, whatever else he was, was a brilliant man, one of the most influential minds in the history of the human race. He was educated, we're told, at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the great rabbis in Israel, which had this tremendous intellectual tradition. Paul was a world traveler. Paul was a Roman citizen. Why in the world would he go to Corinth in weakness with great fear and trembling? Why would he, then when he's writing to them, these people who are all crazy for power and status and rich Corinthian leather, why would he remind them, hey, when I came to you, I came in weakness with great fear and trembling. He's bringing another kind of power. He's convinced that he's discovered that he was blindsided with a kind of power that now is available for the lowly and the needy and the least, and the lost, and the last. And, and when he comes to Corinth, the church is mostly made up of people like that. We saw that last week. If you haven't seen that message, go online and take a look at it. Paul says, remember who you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were well-born. And I came to you in weakness and great fear and trembling so that lowly people, uneducated people, 
uh, slaves people would look at Paul maybe and kind of think, you know, maybe if God could use him, maybe God could use me. Maybe I'm not a nobody after all. Maybe my life makes a difference in something after all. Maybe this message of the cross that's turning everything up, that blessed are the meek and blessed are those who mourn and blessed are the poor in spirit. See, Paul made a discovery in the realm of the spirit. He found a kind of power that is beyond human power that is compatible with weakness, including mine and yours. And he highlights and even revels in his own weakness, and he does this all the time so that other people might see this and understand this power is available to me, and it won't puff me up and make me proud and arrogant. He goes on, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but, but, look last week, but God, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might rest not on human wisdom. Got to get rich, got to get secure, got to get status, but on God's power. This is the source of power. You were made to be powered by God's Spirit, not your own adequacy. Paul is introducing here, now the Spirit of God, or the Holy Spirit, for the first time in his letter to the church at Corinth. And this is such an important subject, and it's why I'm so glad you're here and that we're diving into this. See, what almost nobody knows about human beings, because we do have certain kind of power, is that none of us were made to run on our own power, our own intelligence, our own strength. God said a long time ago through one of the prophets, not by might, that is human might, not by power, that is human power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. After Jesus had been crucified and then resurrected, he said to his followers, don't do anything, don't go anywhere, but wait till you receive the spirit. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. So there's this connection between power and spirit. Now, spirit is a real important word. In our day, it gets used quite a lot. You might hear somebody say something like, I'm spiritual, but not religious. People talk about spirituality quite a lot, but we're not always real clear on what spirituality means. If you ask somebody, what exactly is spirit? My experience, people often get fuzzy and people often get vague. And this is too important a subject not to be clear about. If something's important, we want to know what it means. So just to cue this up, I want to ask you, take about 10 seconds, turn to the person next to you, and if somebody were to ask you, what is spirit, what would you say? Turn to the person next to you, 10 seconds, how do you define spirit? Okay, I'm going to ask you to cut those conversations close. Fascinating. It's such an important word. There's lots of words that matter to us that we're real clear about the definitions about, but often people have never actually thought, what does this mean? What's it about? So spirit at its core is power of a certain sort. Spirit is power or energy, the ability to get things done, which is something that we prize enormously. I have a son who's getting his degree in physics, and he tells me that what we think of as matter at its core is really energy. When I was growing up, I thought, 
you know, there were molecules and they had atoms and they had protons and electrons and way down at the lowest level, at the smallest level, they were little hard bits of stuff. But my son tells me you get small enough, you get down to quarks and beyond that, and it's just energy. In other words, reality is energy. That's why one atom has tremendous power. It's energy. That's why we're so fascinated by energy and why we desire it. So spirit is energy or power, but it's personal power. Spirit is personal power. It's not mechanical. It's not like electricity. Those are impersonal forms of power. Spirit is personal power, but it's real. That's part of why if somebody has a lot of energy, they have a strong will, we'll talk about that person as a spirited person. We want to be around spirited people. Now, Jesus says about God, God is spirit. And now this means something, see. This is a claim that God is unlimited personal energy or power enough to speak the universe into reality. He is the foundation of reality. And this is why in the Bible, the Spirit of God, if you're a Bible person or you want to take a look at this yourself, the arrival of, the manifestation of the Spirit of God in the Bible is very often accompanied by these images uh, like of a fire. Fire is energy. Or wind. Wind is energy. Or an earthquake. Uh, this sense of force. This is God. This is the Spirit of God. The realm of the Spirit is real. And that is part of why the natural response of human beings, when we see the world around us, is to understand that there is a God who created it, a spirit God who created it. Right? Hebrews says, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. God just spoke. God willed it into being. God is unlimited personal power. So creating the universe is no problem for God. Sustaining the universe is no problem for God. Doesn't keep him up at nights. So that what is seen, this little table, this little platform, this little body, what is seen was not made out of what was visible, but was made by God, who is spirit. And by faith, we understand this. Now, this is real important, too. Faith is not the opposite of reason. Faith doesn't mean you believe something for no good reason or evidence at all. Faith is reliance on something. To, to have faith is to trust and faith is the primary way that we, our minds, contact reality. I trust that if I flip this switch on, light will come on, and there's light. I trust that when I put my key into the ignition, my car will start, and it does. Okay? We receive power from the Spirit of God by faith. And you are a spiritual being. There is an unseen, invisible side to you. Your thoughts, your intentions, your desires... And that is the most important part of you. So you, you can't help being spiritual. Spiritual is not something that some people are and other people are not. There is, this, there is this unseen dimension to you. Primarily your will. And there's power associated with it. And the Holy Spirit, the power of God, can interact with human beings in a way that allows us to use our power to serve God and others. And this is the right use of power. The wrong use, the misuse of power, is when I just use my power to get my way. The right use of power is the surrendered service of God and others. God, give me power so I can be who you want me to be and do who you want me to be, and God will do this. 
Paul says, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Pray in the Spirit. This is real simple. This just means that unseen side of you, your intentions with all of your mind, on all occasions. When do you need power? And then just ask God, and God actually will interact with you. Now, you try it this week and see if God doesn't do this, sometimes in quite unexpected ways. Um, I still use a daytimer. I like writing stuff down, but I lose my daytimer all the time. This is a constant problem for me. It happened many, many years ago. I was in Pasadena, and then I was driving on the freeway, on the 210 freeway, and I realized I had lost my daytimer, and it had the directions for a meeting that I was supposed to go to attend that was quite important. It was kind of a ministry thing, quite important for the people that I be there. And all I had was my daytimer to tell me how to get there. This was before cell phones. I had no other way to find out how to get there. And then I remembered that when I was in Pasadena in a parking lot, I had put my daytimer on the roof of my car while I unlocked the door. And then I got in and drove off with my daytimer on the roof of my car. And somewhere between that parking lot and the freeway, it had flown off. And so I went back to the parking lot. It was not there. I began retracing my route and I found along Colorado Boulevard a couple of pages for my daytimer. And so I picked them up, but they were not the pages I needed. They did not tell me how to get to where I needed to go. And so I'm standing there on that occasion praying all kinds of prayers. Not good prayers, just, oh God, oh God, oh God. Why me? Why me? Why me? Help, 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 help. True story. While I'm standing there on Colorado Boulevard, this woman comes around the corner in her car. Her window is open. She is waving my daytimer out the window of her car. And she said to me, I was driving along and I saw this daytimer sitting on the curb. I picked it up and I drove off. But then the Holy Spirit told me to come back here and give this to you. <laughs> then she said, do you believe in the Holy Spirit? I said, believe in him, lady. I work for him. Like, I'm on the org chart in the system. I'm, I'm in one of the boxes there. Now, I don't know. Maybe that was a coincidence, but I find that somehow odd coincidences happen more often when I pray in the Spirit than when I do not. The invitation that Paul makes to the church in Corinth is not be spiritual. Every human being is spiritual. This is often not understood or recognized. Every human being has an invisible side to them. You have a will. That is at the absolute core of your spirit. Okay? And you have thoughts and you form intentions. And no one has ever seen one of those. Now, we have brains that work right alongside with those. That's part of what it means to be embodied. But you are more than simply your body. You are a spiritual being. And to neglect your spirit and the well-being of your spirit is the worst tragedy, infinitely worse than having something bad happen to your body. And all of us have some dim awareness of this. And this is why we say things like, I'm spiritual. I want to be spiritual. But we often don't even know what we mean by that. Very smart people have thought it through at real deep levels. The invitation that Paul made to Corinth, where people were sitting with their rich Corinthian leather chariots, and then he makes now to you and me here in the Bay Area, is now you surrender your will, you surrender your spirit, and be empowered by the Spirit of God. 
And then these prayers that are so rich become real in our lives. Paul says this. This is Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Now you think about this being prayed for you. I pray that out of his glorious riches, God may strengthen you with power through his spirit where in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, see, quite apart from whatever kind of talk I or anybody else could give, whatever kind of human words anybody could say, this is reality. I pray that not out of his riches, out of his glorious riches. I came in fear, great fear, weakness and great fear, weakness and great fear and trembling. I pray that out of his riches, God's glorious riches, God may strengthen you. God may strengthen you with power. God may strengthen you with power. I pray that out of his glorious riches, God may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Through This is reality, see? And then you're not running on your own power. And the difference is hard to describe. I will tell you a story to try to get at it. Um, uh, but I have to warn you about it ahead of time. I grew up in Rockford, Illinois. Rockford was a Swedish town. And so in Rockford, our highest form of humor was jokes about Norwegians. Um, I'm going to tell you one. It is not funny. I know it is not funny. Don't complain afterwards that it was not funny. It simply illustrates precisely the point that I want to make. A Norwegian, this is Rockford humor, a Norwegian goes to buy a chainsaw to cut down trees in his backyard, but it doesn't work very well. The first day, this Norwegian cuts down five trees with his new chainsaw. The second day, only two trees. By the third day, only cuts down one tree, even though he works really hard all day. He takes it back to the chainsaw store to return it. And just to make sure it's working, the shop owner starts the chainsaw up, to which the Norwegian says, what's that noise? Okay, now. This is a true story. After the last service, I found out there were four people who were visiting our church. They wanted to meet with me. Guess what country they were from? <laughs> God's honest truth. I kid you not. They were all four from Norway. Really nice guys. Didn't get the joke. No, they, they got the joke. And, um, doing wonderful work. Doing wonderful work for God. So it just serves me right. Anyway, here's the point. To try to live the life that God commands without receiving the power that God offers is an exercise in frustration. And some people, even some church people, experience that for years. Just how do I live this life? You don't live it on your own. You live it by the power of the Spirit. For three years, read the Gospels. Jesus' disciples tried to do what Jesus said, and it didn't go so well. They didn't do so good. And then he's crucified, and then he's resurrected. And even then, he said, not yet, not yet, not yet. Just don't leave Jerusalem. Just wait. And they did. And then one day, on the day of Pentecost, something happened. And here's how it gets described. Again, notice the language. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, what's that noise? See, It was a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. It wasn't the blowing of a violent wind exactly, but it was kind of like that. It was power. And then 
what looked like tongues of fire descended on them. Wasn't that, wasn't fire exactly, kind of like fire. What was it? was power, personal power, the power of God, the power of the Spirit of God. And that's what they received, power to pray. They were changed. Power to love, people they couldn't love before. Power to witness, power to give, power to include, power to embrace the other in the way that Jesus did, but human beings never do. Power to serve and stop worrying about their ego and their agenda. Power to care for the poor in a way that changed the the poor's lot in the world. Power to resist temptation. Power to build the church. And the church got started with no money. Power to live like nobody ever lived. Power to die with joy and hope. And now it's your turn. You shall receive power, but God, but God, but God. So where do you need power? Where do you need power? Give you a few indicators of the Spirit in your life. When the Spirit comes into your life, then you will find yourself unleashing the gifts of the Spirit. Now, the gifts of the Spirit are special abilities that the Spirit gives. And the Bible talks about these spiritual gifts, these abilities. And the plan for the church is the church be organized according to spiritual gifts, that it be shepherded by people that have the spiritual gift of shepherding. And you find the Spirit is at work in you to do stuff that you couldn't do on your own. And, and people with the spiritual gift of administration, people with the spiritual gift of encouraging and so. And that's part of why there's never been anything like the church. And when you discover and use your spiritual gifts, these special abilities that God gives you to serve Jesus and his body, you'll find not only does the body get built up, but your faith gets built up. And then cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. Now, the gifts of the Spirit are special abilities. The fruit of the Spirit are character qualities. And Paul writes about these. When the Spirit is operating in your life, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And now you pray and ask God to grow that up in you, and then you just watch for it this week. And then, and then you experience the indwelling of the Spirit. You unleash the gifts of the Spirit. You cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. But then you experience, you look for, you pay attention to, you invite the indwelling of the Spirit with you any moment, all the time. Paul writes to this church at Corinth, let me think about these words. Do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you've received from God. I pray that out of his glorious riches, God will strengthen you by his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your heart. A friend of mine, a guy that used to work at our church, was trying to explain that one time to his little daughter that spiritually, by the spirit, Jesus can dwell in your heart. And, and she said, I know, I know Jesus lives in my heart because when I put my hand over it, I can feel him walking around in there. <laughs> That's not a bad way of saying it. He's walking around in there. He is in you and this is real. It is not physical, but it is real. And next week, I'm going to try to explain as clearly as I can how it is that ordinary, broken human beings meet this Jesus at the cross where power came through weakness and life came through death. And then I'm going to invite everybody, all of our campuses, to come to the cross and to receive forgiveness for their sins 
and to become a disciple, a follower, a friend of this man. And I hope you'll be here for that message, and I hope you'll be praying in the Spirit really hard for it and asking, God, is there somebody in my life that needs to meet Jesus at the cross, and and could you help me this week to invite them to help them take that next step in their own spiritual life? So this week, so this week, so this week, you make your life an adventure in, in life in the Spirit, in another kind of power. You look for it. And I'll tell you what will happen when you surrender to the Spirit, when you humble yourself to the Spirit, when you pray in the Spirit, you will find a new aliveness being given to you. You will have a greater sense of God's presence coming into your life. You will have more guidance coming from God, beginning to replace frustration and confusion. And this can grow over time. See, when the Spirit comes, if you don't listen, if you don't respond to the Spirit, you tend to get more uh, insensitive to it. But every time you say yes, every time you respond to the Spirit, you get a little bit more sensitive to Him. You will trust God more. You will worry about yourself less. You will be given a greater love for other people. You will wake up in the morning with a little less worry. You will go to sleep at night with a little more peace. You will receive power. Let's pray. God, thank you that precisely in our weakness, your power comes to us. Thank you that it comes to us in a way that is so different than the world's power that causes us to become arrogant and entitled and privileged and puffed up. God, I pray that there would be a great pouring right now of Holy Spirit power on everybody listening to these words. God, wherever anybody needs it right now, the power to resist sin that's crushing them, the power to step into the light out of a darkness that's defeating them, the power of hope in the midst of depression or anxiety that's killing them, the power to keep going, the power to endure, the power to persist, the power to love, the power to be filled with joy. Oh God, may the power of your Holy Spirit descend on this room right now on every woman and man in this place. May the power of your Holy Spirit be poured out to your glory so that your Son, Jesus, might dwell in our hearts through faith and we be strengthened in our inner being by your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.